First Kings chapter five. Just by way of review where we are. Remember David's son, David's dead. His son Solomon, as, as God promised, is now king over Israel. Remember, God came to Solomon and said, I'll give you anything you want. Solomon loved the Lord, it says, and the Lord loved him. I'll give you anything you want. Solomon asked for wisdom to rule the nation, and God's so pleased with that that he gave Solomon supernatural wisdom like no one on earth had ever had before or after him until Christ came. Great wisdom in ruling the nation of Israel. Now, David, before Solomon, had conquered the tons of territory. Israel's at peace. Solomon now gets to rule over all those lands that David conquered, as well as the, the, the hit Amorites and all those around them who, who David had put under tribute. <clears throat> we saw last time that under Solomon, Israel rose to the highest peak it's ever reached. Financially, we'll see that here in a second again. Territorially, Israel now has more territory than it's ever had ever, before or since. Israel had territory from the Euphrates River all the way west to the to the sea and, and from the land of the Philistines all the way south to the border of Egypt, even had land in Egypt. Israel never had more territory than it had under Solomon. It was the largest the kingdom ever got. It's actually more land than even was promised to Abraham. They're not going to keep all that, but at this point, they're the highest they've ever been. They're the richest they've ever been. They're at peace in Israel, and the people are happy and prosperous and free. Notice chapter 4, verse 20 again. <clears throat> Chapter 4, verse 20. Speaking of Solomon's cabinet and how he ruled over the nation, we, we covered that last time. It says, verse 20 says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And look at verse 25. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, notice this phrase carefully, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. It goes on, and we saw it last time, Solomon has just brought the nation, God has so blessed Solomon that he now rules over all the territory David had conquered, and many other places as well, like God bringing him tribute. The people are happy, they're rejoicing, because every man's under his own vine, under his own fig tree, they're prosperous, they're free, Living in Israel, Israel never had it better than it had under Solomon. God just so blessed the nation, and they're happy. Notice that phrase again, every man under his own vine and fig tree. All of that we discussed last week, that beautiful picture of the wise, kind king ruling over God's people, and they're happy, they're well-fed, they're safe, they're rejoicing. All of that is a picture of the coming reign of Messiah, and we know that. Micah does this. Micah uses the exact words we just saw here in Kings in his prophecy. It's on your sheet there. All of this, this, again, picture Solomon ruling on his throne from Jerusalem. He's wise, he's strong, he's powerful. All the, Israel's at peace, even all the nations around there are bringing him tribute. Everybody is rejoicing and happy. If you say that they're fat and happy under, under Solomon's reign. And then a couple hundred years later, Micah prophesies this. It shall come to pass in the latter days, get that, latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's talking about Mount Zion, figuratively, shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Meaning, the temple hill of Jerusalem will be, all the nations are going to be coming to Jerusalem. And here's the reason why. 
And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge, mean the king in Jerusalem, he shall judge between many peoples, shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And here's the exact phrase taken from 1 Kings chapter 4. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Micah takes the exact phrase that the author of Kings does here and says, what you saw under Solomon is what Messiah's rule is going to look like, only much better. So what you see under Solomon is a preview of what's going to happen when Messiah finally reigns over the earth. Peace, safety, power, prosperity. Everybody's rejoicing and happy, and all the nations are coming to this king. Remember the end of chapter 4, the very last verse, verse 34 says, Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth. All over the world, people have heard about this wise king in Jerusalem, and they're coming from all over the world. We'll see this later with the, when the Queen of Sheba shows up. That's a picture of Messiah. It's a picture of the, of the, of the blessed reign when, when, when Jesus returns. Something to look forward to, neat stuff. Now, let's move on to chapter 5. We're not going to read chapter 5, 6, and 7. Describe in graphic detail the building of the temple. I'm not going to read all this, but I have summed it up for you, and there's a lot to learn here. Solomon's going to, remember, David wanted to build a temple, but Nathan the prophet, God sent Nathan and says, you're not going to build the temple, your son is. <coughs> but notice here Solomon's attitude. I've taken this from 2 Chronicles chapter 2. Solomon's attitude towards his temple. It's on your sheet. The house that I am to build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a house since heaven, even the highest heaven, cannot contain him? Who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him? Psalm has a great idea. He, he loves the Lord. He has a high view of the Lord. He said, I'm going to build him a house. But who can build God a house? Even the heaven itself isn't good enough for God to dwell in. God has, God has to humble himself just to be in heaven. You get that? He's so far above everything created. He created heaven as a place for him to be in this universe. But even heaven isn't a fit place for him. Solomon says, how in the world am I ever going to build a house? But Solomon's determined, the house that I build for our God, Yahweh, is going to be the greatest thing ever built. Because our God is the greatest God there. There are no other gods but him. So Solomon has a great attitude here. Chapter 5, notice verse 3 of 1 Kings. <clears throat> now here he's talking to Hiram, the king of Tyre, but he says this. You know that David, my father, was unable to build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. Behold, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spoke to David, my father, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he will build a house. Solomon's all over this. I'm going to build this temple. And he does. He does an amazing thing here. Now, notice, it mentions there Hiram, king of Tyre, again in verse 2. We've seen him before. In fact, notice uh, chapter 1 Kings 7, verse 14. It tells you who this Hiram is. 7, 14. 
This is speaking of Hiram, king of Tyre. It says, verse 14, He was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill for doing any work in bronze. So he came to King Solomon and performed all his work. This guy is half Jew, half pagan. His mother was Jewish, and his father was a pagan. Now, he's a king of Tyre, which means he's basically a pagan. Tyre was a pagan city. But Tyre is about 100 miles north of Jerusalem on the coastline. Tyre was one of the biggest coastal ports of their day. Lots of shipping came in and out of Tyre. Stuff was sent from there everywhere around the world from Tyre, at least the, the, the local world, I should say. But this king of Tyre, he's the king of a very rich, prosperous, pagan seaport city. But else you just saw there in verse 7, in chapter 7, how God put into him the spirit, it says, of wisdom and understanding. It's like Solomon. God gifted this Hiram to be very good at, at bronze work. We'll get to that later. But Hiram, remember, Hiram built David's house way back in, this would be first, anyway. When David became king, Hiram sent materials and workmen and built David a house in Jerusalem. That's interesting. Now, again, he's half Jewish. He loved David. He knew David. He was a friend of David. And notice here again, we're in chapter 1 Kings 4, the, the last verse, 34. Let's read that again. It says, men came from all peoples, note the S, to hear the wisdom of Solomon, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom, ignored the, the chapter division. It's not there in the Hebrew. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon. Apparently of all those many kings who came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, Hiram's one of them. He was amazed. He just came. He had to, I got to go hear David's son. And he did. He had meetings with Solomon. So then Solomon, when, he when it comes time to build this temple, he turns to Hiram. You helped my father. Now would you please help me? And they make this deal. It's all through chapter 5 here. Thousands of, of weed and stuff going back and forth. Hiram from Tyre is going to send Solomon timber. Lots and lots of timber. From, from, they're going to float it down the Mediterranean Sea down to where uh, Jerusalem is and unload it. And, and, and he makes this deal. I'll give you this much food and you send us this workers and all this kind of stuff. And it goes, it's a big, big project. In fact, seeing Hiram here as a, as a pagan king is a fulfillment. Remember we saw when Solomon became king, Psalm 72 is a, is a psalm, psalm written by Solomon. Here's one of the things he said, it's on your sheet. Solomon said this in his psalm, Psalm 72, verse 10 and 11. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute, meaning, meaning the king of Israel. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. That was Solomon's prayer when they made him king. Well, it's coming true in a big way. The last verse of chapter 4 tells that. And here's this Hiram, very powerful, influential, rich country, providing all this material for the building of this temple Solomon wants to do. Now, let's talk about this temple. Starting in chapter 5, going all the way through chapter 7, even later than that, and several chapters in Chronicles tell us about Solomon building this temple. I'm not going to read all this. There's a lot of details here. But let me, I broke it down for you. This was the first ever temple. This was the first of two. Now, some say there were three. The first temple was built under Solomon. That lasted about a thousand years until the Babylonians totally destroyed it when they, when they invaded Israel. When Israel came back from captivity, they built another temple, a smaller one. That was the second temple. 
Years and years later, King Herod took that second temple that was still standing and greatly expanded it. So some say there were two, some say Herod's temple was a third. Depends how you want to number this. This is the first temple Israel ever built. That's, that's important. Its construction began in 968 B.C. It was finished in 961 B.C., seven years. It stood for, for is this printed wrong? That's supposed to be 974 years. It stood for 974 years until it was destroyed in 587 B.C. Almost a thousand years this temple stood. Now it points out here, notice here chapter 6 verse 1. Chapter 6 verse 1. Now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The author of Kings wants us to know this other date. He refers back to the day, the day Israel left Egypt when they were free. Remember when the, on the, at the, the Passover meal and how God destroyed the firstborn and the very next day Israel was basically kicked out. Get out, get out of here. They, they left. Well, the author here points out that it was, it was uh, 480 years after that day. Now, why is he doing that? Well, if you think about it from Israel's point of view, the day they left Egypt was one of the biggest days in their history. That's the day Israel literally became a nation. That's the day they were set free from bondage. They were following their God out into the desert. That's the day Israel became a nation. Well, now he tells us this is 487 years after that. This is the second probably greatest day in Israel's history. Because think about it, they're building a temple. And announcing that this was a new era in Israel's history, that a new era in Israel's history began when they left Egypt. Well, now another new area in Israel's history is about to begin. They're building a temple. That means their wanderings are over. They're no longer wandering. They're no longer, now they have a land. Now they have a capital. Now they have a king. And most importantly, now they're going to have a temple. That means they're put in place now. They're there. <coughs> That, that long, long history of them wandering, having no, no set... Remember, the tabernacle was portable. It was meant to move. Now God is putting a permanent temple in Jerusalem. That's a big date. And so they're telling you this. It's a big, big day. Another great era in Israel's history is about to start. Let's talk about this temple. I, I gave you a diagram there. In fact, if you want, this is my video, but you're welcome to borrow. This, this walks you visually through this temple and shows you, actually walks inside the temple and shows you how it's, it's gorgeous, a neat video. If you want to borrow this, you're welcome to it. Just please give it back. Also, we do have a tabernacle video out there in the stand and also Herod's temple, the one that Christ was in. But this is a video that shows you what Herod's temple would have looked like. It's pretty cool. I encourage you to watch Herod, that. Solomon's temple. Um, I say, yeah, Solomon's temple. Thank you. Now, first of all, Solomon's temple was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. That's four stories. That's the same basic dimensions as the tabernacle, although it wasn't that high. 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet high. Had the same proportions, basically, as the tabernacle did. Solomon's following on that. 80,000 stone cutters were cutting stone from the mountains of Israel now what they would do is measure the stone they needed at the temple. And then far away, far from Jerusalem in, in the mountains of Israel, they would cut these stones with exact measurements 
haul them all the way back to Jerusalem. The reason being, if you notice, chapter six, um, chapter six, verse seven says, "The house, while it was being built, was built of stone prepared at the quarry." And there was neither hammer nor axe nor any iron tool heard in the house while it's being built. Solomon decreed there will be no stone cutters or hammer banging in this as you're building this temple. In other words, these stones had to be precisely measured, cut in the mountains, and brought in just fit in place. No hammering. Now, there's a lot of discussion why they do that. Well, certainly it's out of reverence. He doesn't want this being just a typical construction site. This is the temple of the Lord. He may be referring to Deuteronomy 27.5 where God told Moses, build an altar of stones there to the Lord your God. You must not use any iron tool on them. And what God told Moses was, you just use natural stones when you build your altar. Don't cut them. That's, that's a different thing. That may be involved, but he's, he's, he's making sure that as this temple's being built, it's massive. There'll be no stone cutting. Those stones have to be measured and cut before they get here. That's an amazing thing. He's not the first guy to ever do that. The Egyptians did that. But these architects were good. They'd bring these, they would measure these stones, and this stone this big, this high, and they would cut it miles away and drag it in there and fit it right in place. Thousands and thousands of stone cutters. And this, this is another example of great reverence. The interior of the temple, both the holy place and the most holy place, which was 30 feet by... Which, um, 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet, and the outer walls were 45. There was, there was, there was the temple itself, and there was these chambers <coughs> next to it. But anyway, the interior was totally covered with cedar wood. The walls, the ceilings. Imagine that would smell. You ever smell cedar wood? And all of that was covered with gold. The floor was cypress. The walls were cedar. And everything, floor, walls, ceiling, were covered in gold, polished gold. Can you imagine that? Again, this video is a good job showing you that. Everything's covered in pure gold, all the walls. And then that gold is ornate. They had, they had guys inscribed pomegranates and birds and all kinds of, in, in the gold itself. Again, the video will show you that, Dean. Would some of this gold have been what they took out of Egypt when they left? That was hundreds of years ago. Probably some of it, Probably. Most of the gold, most of the construction for this temple came from an offering they took. We'll see that in a minute. The people of Israel gave them all this stuff. Notice that also there were, there were ornate windows, frames. There were carvings of gourds, carvings of flowers, carvings of cherubim, palm trees, flowers. There were gold chains of pure gold hanging over the entrance of the most holy place. Everything was gold. It was, it was ornate. It was gorgeous. The picture there shows you some level of that. It was just gorgeous. Plus, Chronicles mentions there were, there were several tapestries made and curtains and wall coverings of purple, red, and blue, just ornate, just beautiful. When you walked in, it would take your breath away. In the most holy place, where the Ark of the Covenant would be, to stand over it. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant itself, there's a picture there on the handout. She has these two cherubim on, carved into the lid, solid gold. Standing above them, 15 feet high, with a 15-foot wingspan, were two cherubim of gold, made of wood covered with gold. They would stand over the Ark of the Covenant. One wing would touch each wall, and the other two wings would touch each other. So if you walked in there, you'd see the Ark of the Covenant, and there's these two 15-foot-high gold cherubim with their wings spread out wall to wall and touching each other, covering, like as it were, hovering over this uh, Ark of the Covenant. Now Hiram, who was the king of Tyre, 
He was skilled in bronze work. What he did, he made two pillars of bronze, 34 feet tall, with an 18-foot circumference. If my math is right, that means they're about six feet across of bronze that stood in front of the tabernacle. They were decorated with chains, lilies, pomegranates. The one on the right was named Jachin, which means he establishes. The one on the left, as you walked in, was named Boaz, which means in strength. Remember, they read right to left. He establishes in strength. That's what that, that was saying. They, they named these two pillars, but they were massive. Again, they, they kind of show them on your drawing there. And then Solomon made all new temple furniture, except for the ark. He made all new furniture. And this, this, could go on for, this goes on for several chapters. And again, there's some pictures there in your sheet. He made a new bronze sea, or the bronze laver. This thing, though, was enormous. It was 15 feet across, 7 feet high. It held 16,000 gallons of water. You can see it there on your sheet. It was sitting on top of these, of these 12 oxen, three facing each direction. It was huge. It was massive, this thing. He made uh, ten ornate basins. On these basins, there's a picture of them too. You can see the little ones there. They were these smaller basins with water in on, on carts with wheels. So they could be wheeled around. Because remember, in the temple, everything had to be cleansed. Every, time, every sacrifice had to be washed. The priests always had to wash. Everything had to be washed. There was water everywhere in this temple, in these, in these basins. Each of these basins held 320 gallons. There were bronze pails, bronze shovels, and bowls. And, and as it says in, in chapter 7, there were too many of them even weigh. No one even knows how much gold was in, or bronze was in those things. There were just too many of them. He made an altar. He made a table of showbread. I believe he made two of them. I'm reading this right. He made ten, remember those, those seven candle lampstands? The tabernacle had one. This has ten of them. Five on each wall. Now again, picture walking in there. Everything's gold. The floor, the ceiling, the walls. Gorgeous, polished gold with all these beautiful colored tapestries. And there's these ten lampstands along the wall. Again, I've encouraged you to watch this. It gives you a pretty good idea. If you'd walk in, it would take your breath away. It's so gorgeous. It's beautiful what they're doing here. He made flowers and lamps and tongs and cups and snuffers and bowls and spoons, even door hinges of pure gold. All of this is gold, 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 gold. It's been estimated that this may be the most expensive per square foot building ever built. Yeah, it's not huge, but the, I didn't mention the silver and the gold and the bronze and all the ornate work and all the wood and the timber and all that went into this and all the, the labor that was involved in this, the thousands and thousands of men who worked on this. It may be the one commentator figured out the most expensive per square foot building ever made. Remember Solomon said, our God is, is the only God. He's the great God. He deserves this. There's more to it than that, though. And I want to note something as well. As you read all these descriptions, there's one thing that's missing. Every other temple in the world, and every, every group had their own temples. Some are very ornate. There's one thing this temple's missing that every other temple has. Do you know what it is? Uh, an idol. An idol. There's no idols. There's no pictures. There's no renderings of what God is. There's no images of God. There's no symbols of God. There's nothing like that. I imagine, again, you weren't allowed to walk in there, but if some pagan would walk in there, he'd notice... Well, where's your gods? Where's his name? Where's, where's the pictures? Where's the idols? Where's the images? Every, every other pagan god, their, their temples were plastered with pictures of their god and idols and all kinds of big ones and little ones. And That's why I love it through all the prophets, especially Isaiah and Jeremiah. God mocks the nations. 
your idols. You cut down a tree. With half of the tree, you cook your food. The other half, you make it an idol. You needle it down so it won't fall over. God mocked them for these stupid idols. This temple has no idols. It's just a, a place for God to manifest himself. It's neat. Neat stuff. Now, you, Dean had asked a good question about how did Solomon know to do this. I want to read a few things now from Chronicles. Turn to First Chronicles 28. Again, if you want to read those three chapters, I encourage you to do it. There's a lot of details in there, a lot of stuff going on. I don't want to cover all that. First Chronicles 28, two books to the right. Remember, Chronicles basically retells the story of Israel from David's rise to power until the Babylonian captivity. Chronicles is probably written by a, a Levite because it gives much more attention to the Levitical things than, first, than Samuel and Kings does. But First Chronicles 28 Give some more details about this. And this is going back a little bit. This is talking about David again. First Chronicles 28. These were David's, David's last words. In fact, right after this, David died. These were his last words to Solomon about the building of this temple and some other issues. Let's just read through this. First Chronicles 28, verse 1. Now David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the princes of his tribes, and the commanders of the divisions that served the king, the commanders of the thousands, the commanders of the hundreds, and overseers of all the property and livestock belonging to the king and his sons, with the officials, the mighty men, and valiant men. Now he's doing all this. All these people are here to hear David speak to Solomon. They're actually like witnesses of what he's about to tell Solomon. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brethren and my people. I had intended to build a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So I made preparations to build it. But God said to me, You shall not build a house in my name, because you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he has chosen Judah to be a leader. And in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among the sons of my father, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. Of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, Your son Solomon is the one who shall build up my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. I will establish his kingdom forever if he resolutely performs my commandments and my ordinances as is done now. So now, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord and the hearing of our God He's talking to Solomon now. Observe and seek after the commandments of the Lord your God that you may possess the good land and bequeath it to your sons after you forever. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart, with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts, understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he'll reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be courageous and act. Notice this. Then David gave to his son Solomon the plan of the porch of the temple, its buildings, its storehouses, its upper rooms, its inner rooms, and the rooms of the mercy seat, and the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord and for all the surrounding rooms, for the storehouses of the house of God, for the storehouse of dedicated things, also for divisions of the priests and the Levites, and for all the work of the service of the house of the Lord and for all the utensils of service in the house of the Lord, for the golden utensils, the weight of gold for all the utensils, for every kind of service, for the silver utensils, the weight of gold utensils, and the weight of gold for the golden lampstands and their golden lamps, with the weight of each lampstand and its lamps, and the weight of silver for the silver lampstands, with the weight of each lampstand 
and the gold by the weight for the tables of showbread for each table and the silver tables. Just, it goes on the forks, the basin, the pitchers, the bowls, but drop down to verse 19. He just gave Solomon detailed plans of this temple. Here's the size, here's all the rooms, here's all the storage rooms, here's the second floor, here's everything in it. Even, he even gave him how much gold and silver by weight you use in each of these things. Where do you get all that? Well, notice verse 19. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the details of this path. <coughs> Did you get that? David says, I just gave you a detailed plan. It's probably, he probably gave him a little model and all kinds of things. Here's the size of this, the size of that. Here's the rooms, here's the chambers, here's the second floor. Here's this, 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 this and this. David says, all of this God gave to me. Notice he says they're in writing. God spoke to me and I wrote it down. God gave me. Just remember, remember Moses went up in a mountain and God gave him several chapters <coughs> and Exodus, all the plans for the tabernacle, right down to the last detail. Remember God said to Moses, don't change any of this. You build as exactly as I've told you. Don't deviate. In fact, even God even, even spiritually gifted the men who would, would do all this. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Because God wanted that tabernacle built exactly the way he wanted it. Well, here we see God spoke to David in great detail. And David said there, I wrote it all down. Here's what God told me. Here's the temple God wants you to build, Solomon. He gave him detailed plans. Now think about that. That was David's role concerning the building of this temple. God himself designed this temple. Just like God himself designed the tabernacle. There's great meaning in that. We'll get to that in here in a second. As you well know. Notice also you're in, you're in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 1. David also was responsible for all the materials. 29, verse 1. Then King David said to the entire assembly, My son Solomon whom alone God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now with all my ability, I provided for the house of my God the gold for the things of gold, silver for the things of silver, then the bronze for the things of bronze, iron for the things of iron, wood for the things of wood, onyx stones and inlaid stones, stones of antimony and stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones, alabaster in abundance, Moreover, notice, in my delight in the house of my God, the treasure I have of gold and silver, I've given, I give to the house of my God over and above all I've already provided for the holy temple, namely 3,000 talents of gold, gold of Ophir, 7,000 talents of refined silver, the overlay of the walls and the buildings of gold for the things of gold and silver and things of silver and the work that is done by the craftsmen. Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day? David says, I have given from my own personal money all this gold and silver and precious stones and all these materials, I've donated to this house of the Lord. And he says, who's with me? Now read on. This gets cool. Six. Then the rulers of the father's households and the princes of the tribes of Israel and the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with the overseers of the king's work offered willingly. And for the service for the house of God, they gave 5,000 talents and 10,000 dollars of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 10,000 talents of brass. It goes on and on and on. Verse 8, whoever possessed precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel, the, the Gershonite. Notice verse 9. Then the people rejoiced because they had offered so willingly, for they made their offering to the Lord with a whole heart. And King David also rejoiced greatly. David gets up and tells about, we're going to build this magnificent house through my son Solomon. 
I am personally going to give all this gold and silver and precious stones that I have, who's with me? And the nation, as, as, almost as one man, rises up willingly and gladly and joyfully and raises all this gold and silver and stuff. You know, your God is moving in all of this. The nation is prosperous, it's rich, it's at peace. They're excited about this. And they bring all this gold and silver. What I want you to see, though, is David's reaction to this. This is one of our memory verses many years ago. Proverbs 29, verse 10. David sees all this stuff coming in. Coming in. Remember, that's how he built the tabernacle, remember? They just took an offering. Remember, as Dean mentioned, they left Egypt. They left with lots of gold and silver and precious stones. That's what built the tabernacle. Notice verse 10. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever. That's one of the few places in the Old Testament where actually God is called Father, though there are some others. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Get that verse. Everything is yours. You own everything. That's because he's God. And you've given us now all of this. He's amazed at what God has just done. Verse 12. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hand is power and might. And it lies in your hand to make great and strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Then he gets humble, as he should be. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? Notice, for all things come from you, and from your hand we have given. That's why you often hear men, when they take you off and pray, that, that they, they quote that. We're only giving back to you what you've given to us. David sees all this gold and silver and wealth and stones coming in, piles and piles, billions of dollars worth of stuff. One of the commentators said, you can't really add up the price of this because we don't even know how much gold was in this temple. It's probably, in our modern day, a, a billion-dollar temple. And David says, your people have given all this only because you gave it to them first. All of this is from you. David's very clear, as, as I love it. Everything goes back to God. He gave the plans for this temple. He gave the peace to the nation they could build a temple. He gave him the son. Now God has provided all this material to do it with. Read on. A few more verses yet. 15. For we are sojourners before you and tenants as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth like a shadow and there is no hope. O Lord our God, all this abundance we have provided to build you as a house for your holy name, it is from your hand and all is yours. That's a beautiful thing. David acknowledges all of this is your doing. Just like that when they built the tabernacle. God gave them the plans. God had already given them the gold, the silver, and the jewel that all came out of Egypt. And the people willingly gave it all. Remember, remember Moses had to stop them. They were giving so much freely to the tabernacle. Moses said, stop. That's enough. It's more than we need. Well, here they gave what in our modern day would probably be close to about a billion dollars worth of gold and silver and precious stones and all this stuff. And they're doing it joyfully. They're doing it willingly. They just love the Lord. They're at peace. God has been so good to them. That's what they should do. It's a beautiful thing. David provided for this temple. And then David and Israel worship God because it's all of him. When this temple's finally finished, it's all of him. He built it. God brought this to pass. And remember, from Israel's point of view, up until this time in their history, every other nation around them had capital cities, had kings, 
had temples. Israel didn't have any of that. Now they've got a capital city, a beautiful one. They've got a king who they love. And now that now they're going to have a temple. But what a temple is going to be, as we just saw. Now let's, let's talk about some significance of this. You could say a lot more about this. We, there's a lot to this. Again, I, I really encourage you, as I, with this fresh in your mind, take this home and watch this. This is neat stuff. The significance of this. Like the tabernacle it replaced, the temple's design was given by God. Now think about that. Why didn't God just say, look, I want you to build me a temple, make it a nice one. He could have done that. He didn't do that. When it came time for the tabernacle, the whole idea was God's. Every last square inch of it was prescribed by God. Well, here comes this temple, the first ever solid temple with a foundation. And God gave them the plans for it. Everything about this temple is, is prescribed by God and provided for by God. God's not leaving anything to quote chance here. Here's how I want it built, and I'm going to pay for it. But there's great significance in this. Just like the tabernacle, God said for this, why did God do that? Why did God specifically say, I want it built in this way, in these dimensions, looking like this, with all this? Why do you do that? Because it means something. These are symbolic. The tabernacle, every bit of that tabernacle was symbolic. The colors, the size, the layout of the rooms, everything the priests did, everything that was there was symbolic of, of sacrifice, of, of the need for atonement, of the coming of the Messiah. All of that was, was, a, was a picture. Well, so is this. Just like the tabernacle, so is this. This was the most glorious and ornate building of its day. Now, there were other temples around, but nothing like this. Nothing. This, this, this would, would have been one of the wonders of the world when it was built. Now, there were other temples built. There were some big ones built. Babylon had an enormous temples, but they're not around yet. This is probably the most beautiful building on the face of the earth when they, when they built this thing. And people would come from all over the world to see it, as you would expect. As, and as Solomon said, for our God is greater than all gods, therefore this temple has got to be the greatest temple ever built. This cost about, again, in our, in our money's day, probably about a billion dollars to build this thing. And, and months and months, seven, it took seven years. Thousands and thousands and thousands of workers. Remember, few Israelites would ever get to see the inside of this. This is a temple. You had to be a Levite even to go inside this place. And you had to be the high priest to go into the most holy place, and that only once a year. All this ornateness is not to show off on the inside. You couldn't go in unless you were a priest. Only once a year, the Holy of Holies. And, and, yeah, and there's that picture again that God is here but you better, come, you better stay away and you don't dare approach him without sacrifice. You don't dare approach God without death. The soul that sins must die. Sin must be atoned for by death. And everything the tabernacle picture now, this temple pictures. God is here, but you're only going to approach him through a substitutionary death. Something has to die for you before you can come anywhere near where God is. That's a, a huge picture, of course, you know, throughout the centuries, which Israel got... And think of this. While God is always everywhere, God fills heaven and earth and beyond that. It's not that part of God is here and part of God is there. God is just everywhere. He is everywhere. Everywhere there can be, God is. Turn to 2 Chronicles. Keep, 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Just like he did in the tabernacle, he's going to do here. Now God is everywhere, but he's going to manifest himself here. In a powerful, powerful way, as you know. 
Again, the video points that out. It makes an image that. Second Chronicles five verse thirteen. This is when the, the Ark of the Covenant was was brought in. They carried the last thing they do is carry the Ark of the Covenant from where it is in Jerusalem into the this temple into the most <coughs> holy place. The priest the priests back out. And there's and there's singing and there's rejoicing and there's carrying on of music. Verse thirteen, in unison, when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord, when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, "He indeed is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting." Then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud. So that the priest could not stand and minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. When they start celebrating, when the Ark of the Covenant shows up, God, remember that, remember that, that the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night? The Shekinah glory. God arrives in this temple, and the priests have to get out of there. The whole thing fills with his glory, fills with his cloud. And then Solomon stands outside and addresses the nation. It's a neat thing. God is in this temple. Again, he's everywhere. But God is, is, is in a specific way manifesting himself in this temple. And that shows you, I think you said that earlier, but God has always had this desire to be among his people. It's a strange thing. You would think God would be far away. He would watch us from a distance. He, he, why would he want to be among? Yet, remember in the Garden of Eden. He would come down and commune with Adam and Eve. He wanted to be with the people he had made. When he made that tabernacle, as God said to, to David back in Samuel, I traveled with you in that tabernacle. God was among his people. Well, here again, in this temple, God has now come down into Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, in this temple. He's there. They could stand outside, imagine, see this, this, this smoke coming out through the windows. God's in there. Now think of it. The God of the universe is in this one spot in Jerusalem in a very powerful and real way. You can actually see the, the, the smoke I'm sure at night it probably glowed with fire in there. What a beautiful thing to think about it. Now that's a that's a neat thought. That, that's the picture of this. Of course, you know there's there's a lot of symbols. I I I I dwelled on the fact that it had you made exactly the way God said because this is picturing something, just like the tabernacle pictured something. On your sheet there, Jesus and the temple. Jesus spoke of this. The apostles spoke of this. Remember in John one, we saw this in our Sunday school class. When Jesus at the first Passover, he goes to. Goes into the temple and cleanses it. Remember, he throws out the money changers, makes the whip, and drives them all out. And they say to him, who, who gave you the right to do this? Give us, a, give us some kind of sign. Prove who you are. Remember what he says? It's on your sheet there, John 1, 14. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Yes, you are. Yeah, I am. I read my notes every now and then. Yes. John 1, 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the word tabernacled. God pitched his tent in the neighborhood. As one of the commentators said, God just moved in. He does that. Jesus is what this temple pictures. Jesus is God among us. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus showed up. God himself came to us. Just like, just like in the tabernacle, just like in the temple he did that, Jesus is what this temple is picturing. God among us. God with us. God nearby. That's a neat thought. He tabernacled among us, and, and, and John said, we've seen his glory. John's referring there, that's temple language. It's like in the temple we saw his glory. God himself, and, and God the Son, tabernacled among us, and we saw his glory when Jesus was here. Now, Raul, remember at the first Passover, 
when they, when they confront Jesus. John 2.19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? And John asked, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is standing in the temple courts and asked him for a sign. Prove to us who you are. He says, destroy this temple. And he probably did this. Now they think he means the temple itself. He means I'm the temple. Jesus is the temple. Destroy this temple. And I'm going to build it back again in three days. Come back. Jesus is that temple. Jesus is what the temple signified. The dwelling place of God. Emmanuel, God with us. All of this had to be exactly the way God wanted it because it's glorious, it's beautiful, it's breathtaking. Everything about this because that's what Jesus is. That's what Jesus, the temple of God, is. The author of Hebrews points out that this temple and the whole priesthood and all those sacrifices as it happened in the future, Hebrews 8.3, are merely a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. That's why it had to be made exactly according to pattern. The temple on earth isn't the real temple. The temple on earth is a copy of what's, what's going on in heaven. The temple, the priesthood, all those animal sacrifices, Hebrews says, only a shadow, a copy, an image of heavenly realities. In other words, everything about this temple tells you something about Christ, something about salvation. That's why it had to be built just the way God wanted it built. It tells you something. It preaches a message. It's, it, it's, a, it's a shadowy picture of God's great redemption. Of course, if you think what the temple is, it, it is. The need for atonement. God cannot be approached without atonement. Blood and sacrifice and smoke. It's, it's, it's beautiful stuff. Luke 20, 17. Jesus, but he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? Cornerstone of what? Now Paul in Ephesians 2, 20 and 21 says Christ is that chief cornerstone. The temple that God is now building, Jesus is that chief cornerstone. When you lay any kind of building, I saw this with Lorraine's father when he was a bricklayer, that first corner has to go in right. Everything else comes off that first corner. If that corner is not right, the whole house is going to be crooked or off. The chief cornerstone had, in their day, with really with stone, had to be square, had to be right on spot to make sure the whole rest of the building is right. Jesus said, you guys are throwing out the chief cornerstone. That's me. I am the chief cornerstone of that temple, symbolically. That's what the whole temple's built on. Exactly right. He's the cornerstone. And we see a verse, I have that verse on your sheet here. In Christ... The Christian becomes, get this now, Jesus is the temple. The temple pictures Jesus. But also, according to the New Testament apostles, it also pictures us. Think about this. In Christ, the Christian becomes what the temple signified, the dwelling place of God. We just covered this in Sunday school. We are a temple. God himself dwells within us. This temple is also picturing what we are in Christ. Now, think about that. The gold, the glory, the beauty, the splendor of this is what we are in Christ. So verses, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple? That God's spirit dwells in you? Now think of what happened in this temple when God showed up. That's only a picture of what we are. Every true Christian has God himself living inside of him. You're a temple. Your soul somehow in, 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 
is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit himself. Here's the verse we just mentioned, Ephesians 2, Paul says. Speaking of how when we all come together and we grow together, these are all, by the way, the use here are all plural. When we all grow together and learn Christ together, it says we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom, notice, the whole structure, the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. When Christians learn of Christ, get together, love one another, and grow together, we're, we're being built into a temple where God himself dwells within. you realize that? That's the Christian church. All of the Christian church, all Christians, you're, I hate to have the song, man, you're, you're a brick in the wall. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets are the foundation, and every one of us is a brick for this building which God himself will inhabit to sing his praises. You ever think like that? That's what this is symbolizing, according to the New Testament. 1 Peter 2.5, Peter picks up on this. You yourself, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. You yourself, again, the you there is plural, all of you, Christians, are being built up into this temple. You're bricks in the, in the wall of this temple. That's why church is so important. <coughs> what good would a brick be if it's laying on a sidewalk? You're part of a Stone building. Yeah, you're part of a massive structure. Every believer in Christ is being built into this building for his praise, for his glory, for his presence. Notice he says, you're a holy priesthood. We're the temple. We're the priesthood. Because what do the priests do? They offer sacrifice, they offer glory and and songs to the Lord. That's what we do. We are what what this tabernacle and this temple was picturing. In Christ, in him you're being, Ephesians 2.22, the verse I left out, in him you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, the use there are always plural. Not me, us, the church, this church, all the true Christian churches are being built into this beautiful temple for God himself to dwell in, which he's dwelling in right now. You realize how, how, how gorgeous that makes the church? That's why this, this thing is so gorgeous. That's why the tabernacle was so ornate. Remember, back in their day, this is 3,000 years ago, we've seen all kinds of glitter and gold. They, they never saw anything like this in their day. They were, dead, they were living in, in very simple houses and tents. To see a building like this standing out and, would blow their mind to see something like this. That's who Christ is. That's who we are in Christ, according to Scripture. So again, picture all this. Remember where the temple is. This is being built where? On top of a hill. What hill? Mount Moriah. I don't know exactly this is the same exact. Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. Now, this whole area is Mount Moriah. We don't know if it's the exact same spot where Isaac was sacrificed. I tend to think it was. Remember what happened on Mount Moriah? God told Abraham to sacrifice your son, but then God provided a substitute sacrifice for his son, pointing out the great glory of the gospel. This is the same place. Remember we saw it back in 2 Samuel. Remember when a destroying angel was coming through Jerusalem to kill everybody because of what God, because David's foolishness in numbering Israel? Remember what he did? He was going to kill for three days, but he stopped short where? The threshing floor of Arun, it says. That threshing floor, David bought, and this, that's where this temple's being built. 
that, that destroying angel, as he's coming through Jerusalem, got to that spot and stopped. God said, stop, no more. That was a sacred spot. In fact, David, remember, he bought that threshing floor and he offered sacrifice. Remember what happened to the sacrifice? Fire fell from heaven and consumed it. That's only the third time in Scripture that ever happened. That means this spot in God's mind was a special spot. And now there's a temple there. Isn't God's dwelling place beautiful? It is. Again, I encourage you to watch this. They actually walk you right in through the front door. It's like, whoa, look at this place. God's dwelling place is beautiful. It's glorious. But that's just a building. That's what Jesus was. In every sense of the word, he was glorious and beautiful and ornate and just worthy of all that. It was just the most beautiful, <coughs> he's the most beautiful person ever walked the face of the earth. He was God incarnate, God inside Christ. He was the walking temple of God. And now through him, we now are that temple. We now are beautiful and ornate and glorious. We're that temple. A couple of hands went up. All of this beauty is describing, first of all, Christ. But that's us too. Not that I'm beautiful in myself, but I'm part of something absolutely gorgeous. So are you. We're part of this building of God. That's how God sees us, Dean. Is this where Christ is going to return to? Jerusalem, yes. Yes, he is. I don't know about this temple. But he's going to rule from Jerusalem, as we just saw there from that prophet from Micah. Yes, glorious. But think of the beauty, the wealth, the opulence, all of this. It looked good. It smelled good. It sounded good. The incense was burning. All that cedar wood. It would have been gorgeous to walk into that thing. And then to walk into the back room, the Holy of Holies. There's no windows there. But I'm sure it was lit up. And these massive cherubim standing over the mercy seat. Well, Israel never saw God. How would they know what a cherubim looks like? How would they know that? Would they ever have seen one? They would have seen it. They actually, people actually saw a cherubim. Am I nowhere? When they kicked them out of the garden, what did God put in front of the, the entrance of the garden? Flaming cherubim. And then you think, you know, they saw them there, these cherubim standing with these swords. Don't you get out. Don't you dare come back in here again. Well, that would have been passed down through, through the many, many centuries. They would have an idea what a cherubim looked like. So the idea there is, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a building, but it's full of significance. It's just full of glory. And it all, this is all God. This is... All of this is God's doing. He ordered it. He designed it. He gave it to David. He gave it to Solomon. God himself provided all the materials for it through his people. God's, God oversaw every bit, of, just like a tabernacle. That's all the point to Christ and what we are in him. That's, that's cool stuff. Anybody else before we close? I recommend you just, instead of letting people take their lunch, just show it next time. I thought of that. We could do that. Just, just do it next Wednesday. Yeah, I thought of doing it. I don't want to do it tonight because it would take up, it's like 40 minutes long or something. No, let's just do that next Wednesday instead. Sounds yeah. like a plan. We'll yeah, let's do that. It's a neat movie. It starts out a little hokey. It, it starts out with Solomon talking to his son, telling him how he came to build the temple. But then it shows you the temple inside, outside, all around it. And it's pretty neat. It's interesting when Herod builds his, I've seen... mock-ups, whatever. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glory of your word and what it tells us, Lord. We thank you that in this construction plans for this temple and all the little details, Lord, we see that you are building a structure that is meant to point us to Christ. And Lord, we know that because your word tells us. Father, we thank you that you are a God who desires to dwell among us. You are a God who desires your people. 
Lord, I don't understand that. I never have. But Lord, I thank you that you did not cast us off. You did not turn your back on us. You desired to be among our people. And you sent your son, who is God himself. When he came to this earth, it was God, Emmanuel, walking among us. God with us. He was everything that temple symbolized. And Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, we also thank you for these amazing truths we just read tonight. In Christ, we become a temple for your glory, for your presence. You actually dwell within us, within the church, within our very bodies, as Paul says. Oh, Lord, you are good. You are a condescending God, Lord. We thank you for that. You, you, how you must love us to do such a thing, to actually want to be within us. Help us, Lord, to esteem one another because of these things, to, to have high views of the church and the glory that it is, that it, and all these things, Lord. Just remember that we are your temple. We are the house you've chosen to live in. And Father, what a great blessing and glory that is. We thank you for our Savior. We thank you for the one who did all this. We thank you for the houses being built on his foundation. He is the cornerstone, and we thank you for it. Lord, again, help us understand these things and to believe these things, and may these thoughts, may these truths help us to glorify our Savior and appreciate our salvation even more. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.